98K News. It's 11 o'clock, I'm Todd Harding. Tonight's headlines. Beijing rails against organisers of a campaign in schools against the national security laws. More activists are arrested over last week's June 4th candlelight vigil and police make arrests as protests mark the clashes in Admiralty a year ago. Beijing has stepped up criticism of a so-called referendum on a general strike and class boycott against the national security laws, as well as those behind the campaign, Violet Wong reports. In an article titled Chop Off the Black Hand, Save the Kiss, the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office says some people were trying to use students to try to stop the security bill's passage. It singled out Demosistos Joshua Wong and Isaac Chang. The office says their action has added heavily to their crimes. It also says teaching in many schools has deviated from the correct direction of one country, two systems, with pro-independence and pro-violence ideas spreading on the campus. It cited a liberal studies teacher cursing police officers and their families online and a now withdrawn DSC history exam question asking if Japan brought more good than harm to China from 1900 to 1945. Beijing officials also took aim at several other pro-democracy figures such as Occupy co-founder Benny Tai and the Civic Party's Alan Leung and Alvin Young, accusing them of inciting people, especially youngsters, to break the law or resort to violence. Organisers of the so-called referendum set for this Sunday have postponed it until next Saturday because of an approaching storm. The Civic Party's Alvin Young hit back at Beijing's criticism, blaming those in power for what happened here in Hong Kong. They wish to extend their hand to a domestic issue, that is education. You see, Beijing, or the statement itself, lacks any quality of self-reflection. They have forgotten the fact that nowadays young people in Hong Kong, they have independent thinking. They have a critical mind. And how on earth did these young men and women take to the streets? Why did they have to do it? It's a result of poor governance. It's a result of the fact that the government is chasing after these teachers. They are just reacting to what is going on. So when a government lacks this sort of self-reflection ability, they have nobody but themselves to blame. At least nine more members of the Hong Kong Alliance in support of patriotic democratic movements in China will be prosecuted in connection with last week's June 4th candlelight vigil. They face a charge of inciting people to join an unlawful assembly. One of them, Andrew Wan, who's also a Democratic Party lawmaker, accused the authorities of targeting the alliance. It is a very strong signal to stop the vigil annually and the CCP wants to show that they want to stop and it is enough. But I want to tell them that we will not stop and we will carry on. I just do not know why the police can allege us as instigation of unlawful assembly. Uh, there is a procedural problem. The police just called us and said uh, they are going to sue us. No one was interviewed by the police. This is purely a political prosecution as well as persecution. Earlier, three leaders of the alliance, Lee Chuk Yan, Albert Ho and Richard Tsai, and media tycoon Jimmy Lai were told of the prosecutions. Protests have been held in various districts, marking the first anniversary of the violent clashes in Admiralty during the early days of the anti-extradition movement. Police say they've arrested about 35 people so far. Timmy Song reports. People gathered on the streets and at shopping malls in many districts, singing the protest anthem Glory to Hong Kong and chanting slogans to mark the final clashes exactly a year ago. 
There were also exhibitions that display pictures of key protest events in the past year. In Bangkok and Causeway Bay, scores of police officers in riot gear intervened, repeatedly warning people that they were taking part in an unauthorized assembly and violating social distancing rules. They were asked to disperse. Some of those who failed to comply were stopped and searched by police. Officers also used pepper spray to disperse people. Outside a Sogo department store, several people were subdued. Democratic Party lawmaker Ted Hoi, who tried to intervene, was seen escorted to a police van. On June the 12th last year, huge crowds surrounded the Dachko complex and government headquarters as the administration pushed ahead with the second reading of the now-withdrawn extradition bill. That led to violent clashes between police and protesters. You're listening to RTHK. The time is now exactly five minutes past 11. Sources say authorities may go through people's social media accounts while enforcing the new national anthem law, which took effect today. It's understood that officers will try to determine if a person deliberately intended to insult the anthem by looking at comments posted on social media. Angel Wong of the Progressive Lawyers Group pointed out that it was something her group had warned about during the legislative process earlier. Now that there is a chance that it will be checked and we will advise people to be careful when they post on the social media because that may constitute as an evidence towards their intent to, to commit an insult. The government has warned civil servants not to take part in the so-called referendum on a strike against the national security law. Officials also have tough words for the union group behind the campaign. Timmy Sung with the story. A government spokesman says the political strike action is radical and it would harm the overall interest of Hong Kong and the reputation of the civil service. He says as Hong Kong is trying to get out of the woods following the social unrest and COVID-19 pandemic, the action of the union totally disregarded the impact on government operation and social stability. And the administration will not sit idle and do nothing. In a statement, the spokesman says civil servants must uphold the rule of law, stay politically neutral and be completely loyal to the chief executive and the government. Those who violate the civil service code will be held accountable. He also says civil servants, as a key part of the public service, have a constitutional role to play. He says civil servants need to keep their heads cool and not to take part in the campaign, otherwise they will let the public down. The government didn't name the union, but the Union for New Civil Servants is part of a coalition behind plans for the referendum and the strike. The union chairman, Michael Ngan, a Labour Department officer, has been removed from an acting senior position recently. In response, the Union for New Civil Servants insists it's not advocating opposition to the national security laws. Instead, it's simply asking members through the vote if they're worried about their freedoms being affected, among other labour rights issues. The union urges the government to live up to its promise to allow people to express their views about the legislation. The standby signal number one is now in effect. That's the first storm signal of the year as a tropical storm approaches Hong Kong. The observatory says Nuri is heading towards western Guangdong and intensifying. Local winds are expected to strengthen gradually tomorrow and the observatory will consider issuing the strong wind signal number three based on local wind conditions. Yuan Kwok Chung is a senior scientific officer. For the weather forecast, it will be very hot with sunny periods, a few showers and thunderstorms on Saturday, while wind will strengthen later, there will be swell. 
It will be windy with scorching showers on Sunday. Sea will be rough with swells. There will still be showers next Monday and Tuesday. Please note that outdoor activities might be affected by the weather during the weekend and stay tuned to the latest weather report issued by the observatory. A group of students formed a human chain to protest against what they say is the unfair dismissal of their music teacher, who allowed her students to perform a rendition of the protest anthem Glory to Hong Kong for their exam. Police later arrived and dispersed the rally at Hung To Middle School in Kowloon Tong. One student we spoke to accused the school of double standards. It is ridiculous because actually the teacher didn't say that she is yellow or blue. Although they say that we cannot talk something about government at our school, but actually another teacher will talk also. They talk something very blue, but they didn't leave the school. The Centre for Health Protection has reported one additional local coronavirus infection. The latest patient is a relative of a Sha Tin couple who were confirmed with the disease last month. Wendy Wong has more. The 58-year-old female patient lives at the same public housing block at Lake Yun Estate as her brother and sister-in-law who fell sick with COVID-19 late last month. The patient was admitted to hospital earlier for a fever, but tested negative for the coronavirus. She was discharged two days later after her fever subsided and was transferred to a quarantine centre where she remained asymptomatic. However, she tested positive for the virus yesterday just before she was due to be discharged from the centre. Health officials believe she was infected through her brother and sister-in-law. She's the eighth resident of the building confirmed with the infection. Close to 1,400 samples have been collected from residents there. About 100 of them have been evacuated. The latest case takes the total number of infections reported here to 1,108. Legislators have approved an additional $10 billion in funding for the troubled shunt into Central Rail Link after pro-government councillors voted down all the motions tabled by their pan-democratic rivals. The vote at the LegCo Finance Committee was 34-21 against. The first phase of the new link between Taiwan and Kai Tak opened in February, while the remaining section to Hong Hum is expected to be up and running next year. The cross-harbour section, meanwhile, is slated for service in 2022. Overseas now, India has reported a record number of new coronavirus cases and has now overtaken Britain as the world's fourth worst affected country. Authorities also warn the capital Delhi could have more than half a million coronavirus cases by the end of July. The BBC's Anbarasan Ethi Rajan reports. The number of coronavirus cases have doubled in recent weeks in India and it's still surging. The worst affected are the states of Maharashtra, Tamil Nadu and Delhi. In the capital, the public health care system is already overstretched, with the worst yet to come. In recent days, people have been desperately seeking help on social media to find hospitals to admit relatives stricken by the virus. The rapid increase comes after India relaxed its lockdown. Critics say this will further stoke infection rates. North Korea has said it sees no benefit in maintaining the relationship between its leader Kim Jong-un and U.S. President Donald Trump. The North's foreign minister, Ri Song-gwan, said U.S. policy proved Washington remained a long-term threat. The BBC's Laura Bickering explains. The first summit between a sitting U.S. president and the North Korean leader was supposed to be a turning point, but very little was agreed. A second summit in Hanoi eight months later failed after Washington asked Pyongyang to give up a large proportion of its weapons program before receiving sanctions relief. 
The statement by Ri Song-gwon accused the Trump administration of using these summits to score political points. He claimed the White House made empty promises and said that North Korea would never again offer Washington a deal without getting anything in return. Mr. Ri also said that Pyongyang would continue to build weapons to combat the threat from the US. Sports Now Golf's PGA Tour is back in business with the Charles Swab Challenge in Texas with no fans in attendance. England's Justin Rose is among the early leaders after firing a first round seven under par 63. Delighted the way it clicked into gear today, especially the short game putting, you know, some of the stuff that it's hard to, to practice without some pressure. I think for me the key was you know, getting off to a good start. Although my game wasn't great the first few holes, you know, I made a couple of putts. I knocked one in off from just off the green on my very first hole of the day and sort of looked at my caddy and went, welcome back. Rose shares a one-shot lead with the American Harold Varner going into the second round. Justin Thomas is in a four-way tie for third at six under par. The English Premier League will return next week from the coronavirus stoppage. The BBC's John Bennett gives us a sneak preview. So after being suspended for three months due to the coronavirus pandemic, the Premier League is days away from resuming. When the games begin on Wednesday, health and safety protocols will be a big talking point. In Germany, Bundesliga players and staff have been required to wear masks at all times, except for during play. But in the Premier League, they won't have to wear them at all, even in the changing room or on the bench, although the fourth official, as well as doctors and physios, will have to. There'll be strict limits on those allowed into stadiums on match days and grounds will be split into zones, including the tunnel and pitch side. In total, only 300 people will be in each stadium, with no more than 110 in the red zone, including players, club staff and officials. Aston Villa v Sheffield United will be the first game on Wednesday. Villa is second from bottom and desperate for the three points to climb out of the relegation zone. Sheffield United have been the surprise team of the season and would move up to fifth with a win. The second match of the restart will be Manchester City against Arsenal. If City lose, that will give Liverpool a chance to secure the Premier League title by winning their opening match of the restart against Everton. Those are some of the games to look forward to. This is John Bennett at BBC Global Sport. A reminder of our top stories tonight. Beijing rails against organisers of a campaign in schools against the national security laws. More activists are arrested over last week's June 4th candlelight vigil and police make arrests as protests mark the clashes in Admiralty a year ago. The news from RTHK. RTHK Radio 3 It's time now to look at stories covered in this evening's Newswrap programme. A new law making it a criminal offence to insult or misuse the national anthem took effect today. Sources say police officers have been briefed on how to enforce the legislation. People who deliberately insult the anthem by, for example, booing it at a football match or making rude gestures while it's being played would likely be in breach of the law. And it's understood that officers would be allowed to go through suspect social media accounts as part of investigations into their intentions. Jim Gould asked Angel Wong, spokeswoman of the Progressive Lawyers Group, what she thought of the new law. My overall view is um, I think there is a worry about it because uh, the definition of ENSO is quite wide um, and we are quite concerned if the citizens would inadvertently break the law. Although we, we acknowledge that there is uh, the element of an intent, so a person would only commit an offence if he publicly and intentionally insults the national anthem. But then, when the 
definition of insult is so wide, we would wonder if the citizens would be committing those insulting acts without knowing. So uh, what about people involved in, like, uh, parody work? I mean, should they be worried? Uh, I think the... the uh, the ordinance, in fact, the ordinance provides some kinds of uh, some kinds of restrictions in terms of the creation of the parody work. Because in Section Six, there's an offence of misuse of national anthem. So, if you actually alter uh, the the, the, uh, the content of the national anthem, and then you uh, you use it in a commercial advertisement. Or under Section 7, if you publish it, and then if you are found to have the intent to insult the national anthem, then there is a risk that you will be convicted. So I think they have to be careful when they are trying to do parody work. And now we've heard that the authorities uh, may go through people's social media accounts uh, for to look for previous comments to determine intent. What do you think about that? Actually, one of the worries that we expressed earlier at the, at the second reading stage of the bill, where we attended a public hearing, and we wonder if people's uh, uh, people's speech or expression on their social media will be checked. And now that there is a chance that it will be checked, and we will advise people to be careful when they post on the social media, because that may constitute as an evidence towards their intent to to commit an insult. And what do you think about uh, the penalties? I mean, they're, they're in line with the national flag law, aren't they? Yes, they're in line with the national flag law. And actually, we are more concerned about how people will be convicted. Because when, when you mention the national flag and national emblem law, there is also an offence about insult. But the definition is much narrower because some specific acts were mentioned, like militating uh, that or burning the national flag. But then here, in national anthem law, we see that we you can commit an insult if you undermine the dignity of the national anthem as a symbol and sign of the PRC. So we see that the definition is wider and people would be subject to the same penalties um, under, under this new law. And that's why we are more concerned about it. And uh, the authorities have cited the, the booing of the anthem by Hong Kong football fans in the past as a reason for the law. Um, is that a reasonable, um, you know, uh, to proceed on that basis? Uh, in fact, uh, it might be difficult to say that protecting the dignity of the national anthem is no a legitimate aim. So, uh, in other words, it might be reasonable for them to say that to protect the dignity is a legitimate aim. Because in the past, it's ruled that protecting the dignity of uh, the national flag and national emblem is a legitimate aim. But we are more concerned about whether the ways of doing it, whether it's proportionate to this aim. So I would say that given the definition is so wide, there might be a potential challenge against whether this is a proportionate response. 
Amnesty International is calling for greater scrutiny of what it calls the shadowy and poorly regulated global trade in tear gas. The group says it's fueling human rights violations by police against protesters all over the world, with tear gas used against peaceful protesters and inside hospitals and universities. Hong Kong was highlighted as the high-profile example, with many examples of excessive use. District councillor Kwong Po Yin, who's also a doctor, told Richard Pine that she finds it illogical that a weapon that is banned in war zones can still be used as a riot control agent. Tear gas is banned to use in war zone, but it can be used as crowd control agent to ordinary people. It is not quite logical to me. And to be honest, in the very beginning and for a very long time, people think tear gas only has temporary effect and will only harm a little. So they are using it like whenever they use. But we can look for some evidence that there is some significant injury to the people who involve or exposed to the tear gas, which is dangerous if we continue to think tear gas is something harmless. Since you're a doctor as well, I mean, Amnesty was saying that there's not enough long-term research about the exposure. Were you and some other activists able to find out some lingering effects of the tear gas exposure? There is some cases about some pneumonitis and some long-term effects. However, because most of the time when people are exposed to tear gas, they are not under a proper registry and under investigation for long-term effects. And the tear gas use in the last 10 years is getting more and more. But the effects may not come out very soon as the immediate effects. So proper study and more investigation has to be done before we can comment on how is the proportion or how is the long-term effect affecting the people exposed to the residents. In terms of what, what can we do in terms of solutions? Should there be some local guidelines on the use of tear gas? And internationally, does there need to be more maybe restrictions on the sale? Actually, there is guideline, but people are not following the guideline. We, we are seeing cases flying towards the sky, flying from above and towards a dead end or massively firing towards a cloud of people. And all this kind of act is very dangerous. I agree with the international trade ban. However, we can see down the day they are finding the loophole to import the tear gas from other countries which do not have the trade ban, but they can continue to buying it from somewhere else. India has reported a record number of new coronavirus cases and now has overtaken Britain as the world's fourth worst affected country. Almost 11,000 new infections were registered on Friday and the total number of cases will shortly exceed 300,000. Authorities warned the capital Delhi could have more than half a million coronavirus cases by the end of July. Anna-Marie Evans asked our Delhi correspondent Murali Krishnan what the situation is like there. Actually, it's almost like a dystopian nightmare. Uh, you know, the country's uh, shaky health system, uh, it's been pushed to the brink um, under this load of, uh, you know, an exponential spike in the number of patients needing intensive care. Um, there are four urban cities, Mumbai, Delhi, Chennai, and Ahmedabad. They've seen a substantial spike, and they account for 40%. But, but the capital, Delhi, and Mumbai, I mean, I mean uh, has seen an extraordinary surge in cases where the um, healthcare system has, still, has simply not been able to cope. In fact, it's the brink of collapse. I mean, I, I can go to as far as saying that, uh, because uh, over the last uh, uh, week, 
week or even uh, the 10 days, there has been, I mean, harrowing, inf harrowing tales of people being refused admission or, or, I mean, or, uh, or, or people having died in the hospitals because the hospitals have denied them uh, uh, admission because there's simply no beds. And uh, that is something which has uh, led to the uh, panic button being pressed and, um, and the government taking a stock on, uh, on what needs to be done uh, uh, to get to get the uh, health apparatus up and running. And that is extremely worrying, uh, given the fact that uh, India, is now, uh, India uh, has already reached the fourth position globally, and the authorities are now grappling uh, to contain uh, the, rise of, the rising number of cases. And also, but um, the actual death toll in India has been less than, uh, or fewer than, than elsewhere. Why is that? Well, that's something which is which everyone seems to take refuge. But I see the worst is yet to come, uh, given the fact that the way the way the, uh, uh, the transmission of infection continues to increase. Uh, right now, the, uh, the the mortality rate is close to around two and a half percent of of the total number of cases. In, uh, India is now reaching the three hundred thousand mark. But that should be not that should not be in any way uh, be, uh, give the authorities uh, or be complacent about how things are going because it's, it's, it will continue to peak for the next two months. We, uh, according to various virologists as well as epidemiologists, they believe that uh, India is yet, I mean, that the worst is yet to come. Uh, and the projections by many uh, epidemiologists say that, uh, that uh, the, the population of almost about 1.3 billion, in fact, there's a recent study which is done by the National Center for Disease Control, that's a health ministry body uh, which is tasked with disease surveillance they believe that the number I mean uh, the reproduction number that's the average number of people a single COVID patient infects uh, had increased between the lockdown one and lockdown four and, and India would probably need 621 million recoveries to achieve herd immunity and that's a very telling statement uh, about the current rates of disease transmission so uh, even though the mortality rates uh, might be low there, there, I mean there, there, there is there, we still have months uh, a couple of months to go before the worst hits us because right now we're not even factoring what's happening in India's rural outback what we saw just about three weeks back and which continues even right now in waves people moving from rural areas back I'm, I'm sorry from the cities back to the rural areas we are seeing a sort of a surge of a spike in cases of them going back to the villages and and India's rural infrastructure, our health infrastructure, health rural infrastructure is very, very poorly equipped. Cinemas in India may still be closed, but there is some good news for Bollywood fans. The first major Hindi movie to go straight to streaming is released today. But even though the lockdown is being eased in India, some fear going to the movies may never be the same again, as the BBC's Rahul Tandon reports. That's one of the most popular Hindi, or as some of you may know it better, Bollywood songs of the year. You'd normally see that on the big screen, but this Friday, things are a little different. That's from the trailer Gulabo Sitabo, which stars one of India's greatest ever actors, Amitabh Bachchan. It was released on Friday, but not in the cinemas. Instead, 
It was on the streaming service Amazon Prime. So, in effect, becoming the first big Bollywood film to go straight to the small screen. Surjit Sarkar is its director. I am actually quite happy and excited that I am experimenting my film on the digital platform. As this is the first time, so I don't know how it is, but I'm still feeling quite excited. My film was ready. The future in the India release in theatricals at this moment looks uncertain, so I didn't want it to wait. Lights, camera. COVID-19, as it has in many parts of the world, has forced India's cinemas to shut down. And even though things are slowly opening up, like malls, as India's lockdown is eased, it's not clear when Indians are going to be able to munch popcorn and watch a film on the big screen. And even when they do open, many movie buffs don't seem that keen to return. Considering the coronavirus in the long term, I'm not sure whether I would want to go back or not. As of now, definitely not. I would prefer staying home and seeing it online. I really can't understand why must people go to a movie hall and see the movies. So, is this the beginning of the end for the cinema industry in India? Are people just going to watch films at home? More films are going to be launched here on the small screen over the next few weeks. Siddharth Jain runs IMAX, one of the largest cinema chains in the country. I don't see this. becoming a trend at all for the simple reason that the visibility that a filmmaker and a star get when they release their film theatrically is totally different mega stars are made on the big screen india's film industry should be dancing again soon but it's not clear whether indians will be watching their movies on the big or the small screen are abhi to party shuru hui hai Those stories were part of the news wrap program which was broadcast on RTHK earlier this evening. Todd Harding from our newsroom. Legislation on national security in Hong Kong is designed to safeguard national sovereignty, security and development interests. It will also ensure that Hong Kong becomes a safer, more stable city. The legislation is aimed at an extremely small minority of those whose behavior and activities pose threats to national security. It will not affect the legitimate rights and freedoms enjoyed and exercised by Hong Kong residents in accordance with the law. National security law preserves one country two systems and restores stability. Live across Hong Kong. This is Radio 3. January to December. We'll have moments to remember. 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 It's that time again. Time for our kind of music. Nostalgia. All the way until 1 a.m. with Ray Cordero.
The beautiful Estelita, played by Mentovani. Jim Reeves offering his love. I love you because you understand it. Every single thing I try to do. Every 